what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. This is Karen from Time Genies. We know time is our most precious commodity, so let Time Genies help you with tasks such as home organizing, small business cleaning, relocation services, and lots more. My team of high-quality and trusted professionals is your one-stop shop for your personal and corporate needs. Let us help you reduce stress and give you time to do the things you want to do, making memories. Check the Time Genies website for more info. Go to www.time-genies.com. Foot Candle Films. Film news and reviews from two guys who really like movies. This episode is brought to you by the Foot Candle Film Society. For a schedule of upcoming screenings and membership information, visit the Society's website at www.footcandle.org. Hello and welcome everybody to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.TV. My name is Alan Jackson. I am co-founder and co-director of the Foot Candle Film Festival and the Foot Candle Film Society out of Western North Carolina. With me as always, Chris Fry, the other co in my co-producer, co-director, co-founder, all the co's you can throw at it. Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Looking forward to talking about uh, the two movies we have slated today. Should be interesting. We are still in uh, distance recording mode, as you can probably tell from from uh, the recording quality, and you know we're looking to the day when we all can hop back in the studio and record face to face. But thanks to technology, we can do this remotely just about as good. So we're going to get right into our show, which is a movie review and discussion show. In case you're joining us for the first time, every time we get together, we always have at least a couple of films that we want to do a, a nice deep dive review of and discuss, and then we'll move on to some other parts of the show, which include for this episode. We will be doing a uh, installment of our trailer tapas, which is where we dip into the tasty moist morsels that are those trailers and talk about a couple of new movie trailers that have recently come out that we've had a chance to catch up with, give you some thoughts on those. And then we also have a couple of, uh, well, really just one news item I want to dig into. It might be one of our patented soapbox discussion, Chris, because I think you and I both are going to have some opinions on this talking about the Academy Awards in this coming year. I'm curious to see if you and I fall on the same side of the soapbox on that one. I'm curious. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. I, I have, I believe I have my thoughts, although I could be easily swayed one way or another. So we'll see. <laughs> okay. And then we'll end up the show with our recommendations where both Chris and I provide one recommendation of a film that we think is worth your time checking out, or at least something we caught up with recently that we think would be fun to check out online. So, Chris, we got a full show. We got a lot to talk about, some great movies to discuss. So, if you're ready, let's just jump right in. I'm ready. Let's do it. We will be reviewing first up the latest from writer director Spike Lee. This is a film that went straight to Netflix given the pandemic situation. But we will be reviewing his follow up to Black Klansman, which is the film The Five Bloods. Black G.I., is it fair 
to serve more than the white Americans that sent you here. Nothing is more confused than to be ordered into a war to die without the faintest idea of what's going on. I dedicate this next record to the Soul Brothers of the 1st Infantry Divisions. Be safe. Welcome back to Vietnam. Look what I found. You're the man in all his glory. Who was that guy? That brother was the best damn soldier that ever lived. We bury it. Later on, we come back and collect. Chris, in The Five Bloods, we have the story of four African-American vets, Vietnam vets, who are battling the forces of man and nature when they return to Vietnam for two reasons. One, they're looking for the remains of their fallen squad leader, played by Chadwick Boseman in, in a lot of flashbacks, and the gold fortune that they helped he helped them hide when they found it as soldiers. So as I mentioned before, this is the follow-up to the Oscar-nominated Black Klansman, and it does find... To some degree, Spike Lee working in some very similar territory. We have a story that is using fictional characters, but basing off of key true historic events. You have both an intriguing tale with some action and characters, but also laced with a good fair amount of social commentary to go with it as well. So, Chris, with The Five Bloods, you know, this is an interesting film in that it was going to be a theatrical release. That was how it was intended when it was being made. Uh, and Spike Lee, I think this is the first time he's done anything that's gone straight to online distribution, video on demand. But he did announce it just a few weeks ago saying, hey, look, the movie's going to come out online. So I kind of got the impression that it was something that Netflix crafted a deal to say, look, we'd love to have the latest Spike Lee film go right to our uh, our viewers, our subscribers, TV sets. So that's what we have going into this. So, Chris, I, I hate using the comparison of the, the last movie, but when you had Black Klansman, which got so much acclaim, uh, well-regarded, a lot of Oscar nominations, we both really did like the film during our discussion. I have to kind of do a comparison. I mean, we're looking at another historical event kind of told through the lens of Spike Lee uh, when we look at Vietnam War and we look at the role that the African-American soldiers played. I have to ask you, how does it compare to Black Klansman? Did you like it more? Did you like it less? And is there anything that uh, maybe impacted your viewing of this film? Well, um, so I I think Defy Bloods was a little bit of a disappointment to me. Okay. Um, and like you say, it's hard not to reflect on his previous film, which won him his first Oscar, you know, Black Klansman, and compare this to it just because – it was kind of a return to form for him. Black Klansman was, it got him a lot of acclaim, you know, it was universally praised. And then this movie, you know, had buzz behind it because it was like, Oh, Spike Lee going straight to Netflix, but he's right off Black Klansman. Let's, you know, do it. You know, huge cast. Um, and something about it. I mean, it's not a terrible film. There were aspects of it that I, li- I liked about it, but something about it felt a little, um, actually kind of, it was very kind of felt a little too similar and too familiar coming off Black Klansman. Um, his usage of historical footage and putting things in context and cutting to that as often as he did 
which he did summon Black Klansman. But I think because he had just done it in that film and the setup of this movie, you described the setup, they kind of do some historical footage at the very beginning and kind of put you in the mindset. And that, that was okay. But the fact that it was returned to as much kind of bothered me. And here's something that I was just thinking of as you were giving this setup. To me, these two films are kind of an interesting comparison, and I feel almost equally about them as I do um, in Glorious Bastards and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And let mm. me explain. Mm-hmm. Inglorious Bastards was Tarantino taking something, the Nazi period in history, and putting his own spin on it and doing an ending. And that was unique how he treated that whole story, especially the ending part. And I liked it. thought it was one of his best works ever. Then, you know, he did hate for it, didn't really care for it. But then he did the most recent Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It got a lot of buzz, a lot of acclaim for him. But I was, I liked it, but I was kind of, I felt like he was kind of copying himself, aping himself because of the way he did the ending of that movie, which was very similar to Inglorious Bastards. So it's like he found something really cool in the idea of Inglorious Bastards, and then he just kind of tweaked it a little bit and made another movie. That's kind of how I feel the five bloods did with black Klansmen. that, you know, granted there wasn't a movie in between these two. These are his back-to-back films. Um, but that was kind of my, my takeaway from it. So I've rambled enough a little bit to, I'll get to some likes about it, but that's kind of my initial, mm-hmm. my initial takeaway. Let me, let me hear your thoughts. Um, I, I am going to say, I think I like this film more than you. Um, maybe not quite as much as black Klansman, uh, uh, for a couple of reasons I think we'll go into, but I think it's, it's a little closer in my estimation. I I didn't feel disappointed by the film. Um, I do think there are some issues with it. I think there's some things that really hold it back and some things that trip it up, but I will say, I think, I think what really I, I appreciated more about this film was I really dug the story. I think the premise, the concept, the overall uh, the overall plot in general, uh, even though it's shaggy at times, and that's well, something we'll talk about in some of my issues, I think the overall core plot I really just connected with. I really enjoyed this concept of four, you know, or, or four Vietnam vets that were part of a squad returning back, you know, not just the idea of going back to retrieve the remains of their squad leader, which is honorable enough, but there was also this little twist that, you know, there's some gold they found that technically is not theirs, but right. they find, decide they're going to go back and take it and retrieve it where they had buried it. That to me, that whole setup was really fascinating. I, I love the story mechanics of that. I agree. And there's a, and there's <laughs> enough moments and scenes in the film that really, I really enjoyed. There's enough scenes in between some of those scenes that didn't work for me. And I think that ultimately did knock the film down a little bit for me and kind of, I wasn't able to walk away saying I love this film, but I did generally like this film and I had a good time with it. Um, let's talk about some of the things I think that, that do work in the film, if we could do that. And then we sure. can roll into some things that we had some issues with. Sure. Um, as I mentioned, I, I really liked just overall the story. I thought it was unique. I thought it was interesting. I found myself honestly wanting to know where the story was going to lead. It felt kept me pretty captivated the whole time. Um, and I loved overall the challenge. I think 
Spike had a lot of things he wanted to kind of cover in this film. Probably too many things. And I think that's going to be an issue I'll have in a minute. But I think the things he did try to cover, I thought were interesting things to be covering. You've got the challenge. I love this dichotomy of you're following some African-American Vietnam vets returning back to Vietnam and kind of the encounters they have, I know are drawing a lot of similarities to how African-Americans were even perceived returning back to America after they had their service done in the war as well. And just sure. to see that kind of flip-flops uh, dynamics, I thought the opening 20, 30 minutes kind of them acclimating back to Vietnam were really interesting. And um, so I love that setup. I love, I like the characters. I mean, in general, I thought the characters with only a couple of exceptions, I thought were pretty fun and pretty interesting characters to follow along. Um, and I got the impression, I think this is Spike Lee, kind of like you mentioned in Glorious Bastards. That's actually a, a, an analogy I thought of. I think he's trying to pull his epic film trying to tie in all the types of social issues that he's really wrestling with and his perception of America to try to make this big epic scale film that also could hit on those more personal issues. Um, I don't think it was as successful as Inglorious Bastards, but I do think I know I could see where his head was in the film. And I think I, I understood he was trying to make something really big with these social issues. Um, so those are more of the broad things I liked. Um, what about you? Anything echo on that? Anything kind of resonate with you? Any of those positives as well? So, yeah, there's there, there are positives, and I'll get to them. I'll basically say, um, without giving away too much of the film, <laughs> um, you know, it's kind of, there's some flashbacks, and but if you look at the film, if you kind of divide it up into thirds, um, the first two thirds I was on board with. And I'll say loosely where I started to kind of get irritated was when um, they actually finally got in the jungle and were f trying to find the gold. And I think at that point, it kind of devolved a little bit for me into just like basically a little bit of a shaggy slash sloppy action movie. And then it at the end, it resolves with, you know, some more historical footage being used of Martin Luther King and, you know, making a point about how he was against Vietnam and stuff like that. But it just, I don't know. It just, it just didn't, it didn't, it was too jarring. It didn't work for me, but let me talk about some of the first two thirds and uh, what mm -hmm. I did like. Um, so there's the way Spike Lee uses um some images that we're all very familiar with the guys they get you talked about how they were acclimating to vietnam they return to vietnam they go to a dance club and in this dance club there's a backdrop of apocalypse <laughs> now and then in front of that is like a budweiser banner on like the dj's little turntable thing he's using you know spike lee's like yes i'm making a war movie it's commercial is this like he's just making a lot of comments and then it has the four main guys kind of you know, front and center doing this like dance move down like a, not a car, but like a dance line down the stand. And it's just very intentional and in letting you say like, I'm setting the scene. Yes, this is a movie. Yes, this is kind of unrealistic, but he's saying so much all at once. And in that one instance, all of it worked for me. Commercialism, apocalypse now, these guys trying to have a good time. Oh, that's yeah. probably one of my favorite moments in the movie. I thought that was really good. It mm -hmm. was really good. And then, you know, something they're getting like, 
I couldn't have been higher on this movie within that first 20 or 30 minutes. Like I was just like, man, this is so incredible. You know, and as a whole, that part worked better for me than probably any individual part of Black Klansman, if you're going to say that. Mm-hmm. For example, they come out of this nightclub and there's Spike Lee showing his bravado where he cuts from a scene of firecrackers exploding on the street right to a drum beat and helicopters flying in over a low-hanging sun. And the screen crops down for the first time because he uses aspect ratios to kind of tell you whether you're in a flashback or whether you're widescreen in present day, kind of like a, in a way, kind of like a Grand Budapest Hotel thing that Wes Anderson did there where he flip-flopped mm-hmm. back and forth between all these screen ratios. Um, but, you know, that thing is like, wow, Spike Lee is, he's being Spike Lee. He's really doing mm-hmm. some really cool stuff. Um, and, you know, I mentioned him nodding to Apocalypse Now. I may get this music reference wrong because I didn't look it up and our intern failed me. Um, I think it's like Hall of the Mountain King or something. Ride of, no, Ride of the Valkyries, I believe. Ride, is the of, music the, Ride of the Valkyries. Oh, it's used in Apocalypse Now when he's like, and I believe shortly thereafter, it's like, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. I think it's around that sequence. We have that song used and it's just the boat departing mainland where they're in Vietnam to go off on their mission. And they use that song, not to Apocalypse Now, totally genius though, as far as the visuals that are going on. It, like, it was it was perfect. There again, yeah. couldn't have been better at that point. <laughs> um, I'll say too, you know, we kind of get off some of the visuals and off Spike Lee a little bit. The performances in particular, Delroy uh, Lindo. Delroy Lindo. Oh yeah. my gosh. He was so good. He... Um, I, he, it's one of those performances where after I finished the film, I'm, I honestly just said something out loud to whoever was in the room. Like that was a, that was a performance right there. So he, uh, I mean, he's been around forever as an actor. I've seen him in a lot of other things, but I don't remember him standing out and making quite an impact. And it was a slow build performance too. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was fairly subtle in the first half hour. You kind of knew there was going to be something going on with this character based on you find out kind of his political stance. You find out some of his perception of Vietnam in general, but his, his, he, yeah, his performance just keeps amping up to where it's really, really strong by the end. So. Yeah. He, he surprised me. I think he's one of those people, everybody would recognize his face, but he's usually more of a supporting character. Mm-hmm. And for him to have this role, which grand, you know, there were four other actors, you know, cause it was five bloods and everything, but yeah, he's a really big key component and a huge, huge standout. Well, what do you think of, I mean, yeah, I know this is an ensemble film. There's a lot sure. of lead actors, but I did want to call out Jonathan majors who played his son, David, mm-hmm. um, we talked about Jonathan Majors when we reviewed Last Black Man in San Francisco. Right. And we both really liked his performance in that film too. I thought he was really good here too. So I I I did it was also a performance that got stronger as the film got on went on. Um I felt like I it seemed like he was being dropped in almost as a little bit as comic relief early on. Right. But he really built up his role over time. And I thought I thought he was really good too. Speaking of um, comic relief, and I tried to look over his filmography, and I have seen some of the films he's been in, but Isaiah Whitlock, who's in this film, and he plays one of the returning GIs, yeah. um, he's comic, he plays Melvin, and he's apparently yeah. out in the community, he's known for how he says 
um, the derogatory term for human feces. <laughs> he, yeah. draw, he draws that one thing out, which he gets a chance to do that in this movie. Mm-hmm. He's been in um, 25th Hour, Spike Lee, and I don't know if that's maybe how he's well known, um, but I really like him. His voice even sounds really familiar, so I guess it's just kind of, for me at least, he's kind of that guy that has been in yeah. movies before. But I loved him. I, lo- I mean, yeah. you know, great, but it was more, like you're saying, a lot of times it was more comedic relief or whatever, but I I couldn't get enough of him on screen. I, I loved him. But, you know, Delroy Lindo was good too, but, you know, he was much more of the serious and more of the plot oh, sure. going behind the movie. But I loved yeah. watching Isaiah Whitlock. I thought he was, oh, yeah. he was awesome. I, I liked all of the lead characters. Okay. The only one that didn't work for me. Clark Peters. What? Clark Peters as Otis or no? No, you liked him. Okay. No, no, I thought he was okay too. It was okay. um, it was Norm Lewis as Eddie. Really? The one who was, yeah, I didn't care for him as much. He was the only one that felt uncomfortable. Like in in uh, just seemed a little more stilted and dialogue delivery. Oh, wait, wait, wait! I said no, I said the other guy, but no, I, I feel the same way. Norm Lewis, okay. Oh yeah, yeah. Norm Lewis, who was the the car salesman owner, dealership yes. owner, and all. Yes. yeah, yeah. He was the only one that just didn't quite feel like he fit. Gotcha. I just, I guess, if I had to really think back, you know, could these four have really been, or five have really been that? Tight. tight he's the one i was said yeah i don't know about well, him he didn't feel quite as connected as the group and again i just from what i read i think the others have all worked with spike lee before okay. norm lewis this is the first time he's first worked time. with him so maybe he just didn't gel as much but uh that was the only performance that just didn't really work for me as a lead role yeah i'd call out clark peters i actually really liked his role but i was thinking of okay. norm lewis and you're right norm okay. lewis which maybe that was kind of intentionally done where it's like, yeah, you have this group, but even within this group, there is the one guy who's kind of an outsider. And so like, but yeah, yeah something about his character just didn't seem to quite, quite work as well. I'll agree yeah. With that. that was my only kind of acting concern in the film. It just, I, I just didn't think his part played as well as the others did. Um, so I will say kind of moving on to a few issues with the film you know i'll okay. just say uh, a couple i've kind of hinted it already i think this is a film that's just trying to say too many things and yeah, it, it makes it a little tough at the end to kind of to take away the message i think that spike lee wants to wants to share with this film i mean we've got a film that talks about the horrors of war ptsd mm-hmm. race relations mm-hmm. american patriotism Political viewpoints, family relationships. Political viewpoints uh, from multiple eras too. Oh, the Vietnam absolutely. era and then also yep. bringing it to current Modern day. day. Yeah. yeah. And then tying in historical, you know, race relations issues and events and even tying it into Black Lives Matter, you know, towards the end of the film uh, as, a, as a movement. Again, all important things that should be talked about, but it just felt like the movie was trying to tie way too many things together. And I think it watered down the message of the film. And I feel like at the end of the day, you kind of said it was more like just a kind of a, a, a by the numbers action movie by the end. And I'm afraid the reason you got that perception and others may too, is because when you try to have too many things that you're trying to tie together and, and have connective tissue, and it's easier for a viewer just to kind of fall back and say, well, all that other stuff, there's just so much going on. I'm just going to focus on the action, shooting them up and violence that's going on. And I feel like that may have happened with a lot of people in the end. So 
everything was positive that was being discussed. And I think there were really, really interesting moments where he was tying in some really great social commentary. But I just felt like there was too many themes trying to be tied together by the end of the film. Yeah, and actually, I guess if the action had ramped up to 11, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that would have been better. Like you can have, if there would have been some, but not quite to the extreme that it got to. I mean, we're talking like a okay corral, bloody shootout, like, you know, Quentin Tarantino, all those kind of showdown thing that happens. And that that was just kind of really jarring with me. And that kind of watered down in a sense with blood and guts, all the points that had been trying to be woven together. It just really muddied it, um, it muddied did. it for me. I'll say um, to focus on something positive there again, earlier, mm-hmm. earlier in the film, but it's a scene where Del Roilando there again, we've talked about how much we like him, but he gets agitated at a market um, he gets really, really mm-hmm. highly agitated and the fellows kind of work with him and they kind of talk him down and there's a, and his son is there, which his son wasn't really supposed to be there, but he's kind of there uninvited. And they're on this boat and they end up kind of like, you know, putting their fists together and kind of punching it out saying like, okay, let's all, you know, come together and calm down. And they all do it. And Delroy Lindo looks over to his son and it's like, okay, put your, put your fist in here. Like you're here. You have to, you know, get on the same page. And they did that. And, at that point in the film, you know, there again, it's still early. It's in this first third, two thirds. I wouldn't have thought that it would have been as powerful as it was for me or that it would have had the resonance there again. Like you're saying, his character, Paul, is, starts off kind of minor, one of the gang of four, but then he kind of builds to where he is the central character. And at that moment, for it to have the kind of powerful um, hit the powerful notes that it did for me. I was kind of surprised, and I was I was amazed that it hit me as as hard mm-hmm. as it did. So. Well, I think that I think the father son relationship was fascinating and something that, unfortunately, I just feel like kind of got lost in the shuffle later as the film went on, because of all the other topics and issues and things that we could bring into the story. Um, Right. So again, I, I, I love everything Spike Lee was doing in this film. I just felt like there might've been too much going on, too much trying to be said, uh, too much trying to be connected into the story when, you know, you had a good story, you have a really, really good story to tell. You got some great characters. I think if it could have been a little less shaggy, a little more focused in on a couple of these uh, topics that we're really going to dig into it. I mean, it's a fascinating movie. I just yeah. think, uh, I just think it had a lot on its plate. And unfortunately, when when you're a viewing audience watching that and you've got so many different messages going through your head, it's sometimes easier for your brain just to kind of shut down and focus on the simplest ones, which is not always the one you want to be be leaving uh, thinking about. So um, I'll say, and this is, I don't know, I don't, I don't know if it's going to be perceived as nitpicky or not, but it did affect me, take me out of the film at times. Okay. And I'm trying to still rationalize the decision oh. for this. I, yes, this was. And at first I was like, wait, are they really doing this? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. yeah, they yeah. Oh, I know where you're going. So the artistic choice was to, when you have flashbacks, they actually used the actors that we are following in present day yes. in the flashbacks with no de-aging, nope. no recasting with the younger actors. I mean, it's them with gray hair. I mean, beards, maybe sometimes everything. a little less gray hair, but not uh, much. Not well, see, much. here was the problem. Here was the problem to me. 
when it introduced this concept, we saw the first flashback. Delroy Lindo's character is the first one I remember seeing and could mm-hmm. see the face of. And I remember yes. looking at him and was like, he doesn't look any younger. <laughs> right. Now, the problem was, is that Delroy Lindo has a face that, you know, could, I could see him being looking a little closer to the way he looks now, even at age 20, 20 years old. So I thought at first, well, maybe they were trying to de-age him. He's just a naturally just looks older because he's a taller, more imposing person, personality. And it wasn't until like later in the film, I realized, oh no, they're actually using them now in that part. So I guess if it had been more intentional up front, maybe I would have kind of bought along with it and gone along with the concept, but the way it was kind of rolled out and the, I spent more time in those flashbacks trying to figure out if that was what they were doing or not was actually more distracting. And I think oh, yeah. brought me out of the film. Yeah. So I, somewhere I read Chris and I don't know. You know yeah. I, I, I was it. really confused by that. Yeah, like yeah. why, you know, and you know, Netflix well, has the Irishman technology where they did what they did with the Irishman for Martin Scorsese, where they de-aged De Niro and Pesci and everything. So it's like, was Spike Lee like, I just don't care about that. It's not important to me. Well, I read somewhere and I don't know how legit this is that it was a money and time issue that mm. I think there maybe was some indications or some plans to de-age them because they didn't want to recast them. They didn't want to have younger versions of the actors, and I which can, I agree with. I think that would have, I think a younger version is what we're used to. Right. But, you know, with with a little bit of de-aging, I think, especially in the film scenes, you don't really get good close-up views of them. So it's not like the Irishman where they really had to make sure when you saw De Niro front right. and center on the screen, he had to look younger. These were much more action scenes and they were fast cut scenes. And most of the time, these characters were kind of on the side of the screen or just not front and center. Right. So I think you could have done it. But in general, I kind of wonder if this film got rushed out based on the time because even the fact that spike lee went on twitter i think like three weeks ago it was like oh hey my new film is going to be on netflix starting in three weeks it was like i was kind of shocked i'm like that's that's not a lot of leeway time so maybe it really was kind of they just made the judgment call to say you know what we were going to de-age this but we think artistically it makes sense to show them like this so let's do it um it didn't work for me Uh, i i and i think it was more the way it rolled out um I think you could have positioned it as kind of a, maybe this is them all recalling in their mind. And putting themselves back. Putting themselves in there. I think if you could have framed it the right way like that, it would have worked. But we were just jumped right into these flashbacks. And it wasn't until two or three flashbacks in that I realized what they were doing. And by then it kind of had pulled me out of the film too much. So. Yeah. I I also felt that was, that was really odd. (laughs) Yeah. It was a, it was a choice that didn't work on the screen as well as I, I think they probably wanted it to. Um, and then the only, I'll just, there is a scene in the film. It's a landmine scene that I felt like was poorly executed. It just was a little, I don't know. Again, I don't want to give away too much detail, but there's a character that is so intentional. The movement they make this character do stepping away from the crowd in such uh, an awkward way that it just, it was kind of just telegraphing for me. It was just like, okay, yeah, I know what you're, you have to get him away from the group a certain amount of paces for this to have impact. And this is what he's doing. There's no reason he would be walking backwards this kind of pace and doing this away from the group. 
it was a little too on the nose. I felt like there was just a couple of moments in the film that was trying, trying to artificially amp up this level of tension and it's just build, 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 build. And that was one where it did lead to something. And I felt like it was way too telegraphed and just a little sloppy in its execution. So between that and the choice of the older actors portrayed in the, the, the flashbacks, that's where there were just a couple of moments where I got pulled out of the film and that momentum that we built up in that first 30, 40 minutes did kind of get dissipated a little bit for me by then. So, yeah, I I'm on board with you as well. I think same thing. And, uh, there was another actor, which you never saw, Richard Jewell, right? That Clint Eastwood movie? No. Did you? Okay. Um, Paul Walter Hauser played Richard Jewell in that movie and was really, really good. Sure. And that was the only thing I'd ever seen him in. Well, he was in um, I, Tanya as well. He was in I, Tanya briefly. Um, but he's in this movie as well, and he plays some people that are their jobs are like to go around and find mines that haven't exploded. Um and at first, when we see him in the movie, I was like, oh, okay, well, that was it. And then they kind of come back around. And I was kind of glad because I wanted to see him do a little bit more, even though he didn't really get to do anything. He was just a very, very minor, minor, minor character. But yes, yeah, some of the convenience of some of those things happening the way they did. There again, it was like there were just too many things. and It was a way to kind of put this movie in a third gear. Mm-hmm. And kind of finish out the movie. And it was that part of it that just really I struggled with. And it didn't, on, on top I, I of think, the I aging think, stuff you've mentioned, that also didn't help. So. Well, I, have, I, I wonder, because again, I think the whole landmine group subplot um, made, made things more overly complex and more drawn out than it needed to be. Sure. And this is also a film that I wouldn't have minded being 20 minutes shorter as well. So to me, that's the whole subplot that I felt like just didn't really add anything to the film, added more complexity. I think you could have gotten the exact same results, exact same outcomes without those characters involved and um, just added yet another layer of commentary and topics to discuss on top of the film that already had so many to discuss already. So yeah, that whole that whole subplot with them just didn't work, and that's a good 15, 20 minutes out of the film, I think, we didn't need. So uh, right. uh, otherwise, it would have been so much tighter, so much stronger, I feel like. Um, so yeah, that's where I am. I still, I'd like the movie. I'm, I'm recommending the film. I, If nothing else, I had a really good time watching it. And I think the times it does hit those social commentary moments and has a lot to say, it's very good at saying them. Um, but I just wish it had not tried to be quite so ambitious, you know, with trying to cover so many things in such an epic scale, I think might've hurt it a little bit. I think uh, the story itself was so good and so strong. I don't think it needed to add so many, so many layers on top of it. Yeah. I'll say I would, I I think this movie would have been great to see in a theater. I mean, as those movies are, but yeah. because there was the scope of the war and oh, the action yeah. scenes and stuff like that, it would have it would have come across really well on the big screen. I will say cinematography I thought was beautiful. I thought the the the, the uh, landscapes in Vietnam, the just uh, I mean, there's a an old ruined temple we see late in the mm-hmm. film that was really beautiful to see, and so much was great. So it was a beautiful looking film. I think it was well directed. I think it was mm-hmm. well shot. I think. The story itself is so good. It's just it's just a situation where I think Black Klansman was so 
focused on certain subject matter and certain uh, topics and certain, uh, you know, uh, issues to, to wrap around would make it so good. This one, I just felt like was trying to grab onto so many things and it just made it tough. I will say though, Delroy Lindo, so good in this. There's already some Oscar nomination buzz for him, which we'll talk about when we get to our Oscar pre-talk here later in the episode. Fair enough. Um, But I mean, I'm all for it. I think he's great. I think uh, it got later as the film went on, I was more and more interested to see what he was doing and what he was going to do next than I was the other characters. And that's, it's a sign of a good performance there. So. Absolutely. So that's the five bloods. It sounds like, you know, a letdown for Chris or a little bit of a disappointment, not, not quite as a positive a take on it as he had in some of, uh, especially Spike's previous film. I also felt it was a little bit of a step down, but I also feel like it was a very ambitious film. I overall really liked it and highly recommend it. Uh, but with some misgivings and some things out there, I wish could have been a little tighter, could have been a little more focused on, on what we could have gotten out of this film. So, but overall, I'm still saying positive and uh, with that. So that's The Five Bloods. It is on Netflix right now. So if you're a Netflix subscriber, you can watch it right now. If you're not, I mean, Netflix is what? $9 a month? Is that what Something it is like right that. now? So to me, it's a $9 worth getting Netflix for a month to see a film like this. It's worth nine bucks in the household, if you ask me. So All right, let's move on to our second review, Chris, which is the latest by writer-director Judd Apatow. It is a starring Pete Davidson, best known from Saturday Night Live. It is the king of Staten Island. I like your tattoos. What are those numbers on your arm? Oh, that's uh, the date my dad died. He was a fireman. Died in a fire 17 years ago. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. Don't be. It's fine. Knock, knock. Who's there? Not your dad. (laughs) You can't focus on Scott anymore, honey. He's 24 years old, Marjorie. Let that and bird fly, please. Don't worry, Mom. I know your daughter got smart and went to college and abandoned us. But I'm still here. I'm going to be here forever. Yeah. Judd Apatow, director of movies like Trainwreck, that had Amy Schumer, Knocked Up, that had Seth Rogen, 40-Year-Old Virgin, that had Steve Carell. He takes comedians and then you know, makes a movie that sometimes has some biographical elements like maybe Trainwreck, but definitely this one with Pete Davidson and the King of Staten Island. You mentioned in the intro that uh, Mr. Pete Davidson has been on Saturday Night Live. Well, the storyline of King of Staten Island is there's a character named Scott who has had a case of arrested development since his firefighter dad died. Um, And then it follows what happens when his mom starts dating another fighter fighter and how, you know, Scott struggles with that. Well, Mr. Pete Davidson had a dad who was a firefighter who died in, uh, as of 9-11, he was helping with that situation and died. So I am not as familiar with Mr. Pete Davidson's background as I think maybe, Alan, you might be, but um, you are familiar with his work on Saturday Night Live. So how did this version of Judd Apatow taking a comedian and making a movie with them that may have some elements that are somewhat true to their life, how did, how did King of Staten Island fare for you? Um, I'll say this. I was not terribly excited about this film. Okay. Um, Pete Davis, I'm a big Saturday Night Live fan. Okay. I, I watch it every week. I know the cast of characters. I'm 
big on sketch comedy. And Pete Davidson, someone who I have not enjoyed on Saturday Night Live. Uh, he came in with kind of a big hoopla around him, unfortunately tied to his his background. I mean, I think that was, and unfortunately that was something I think the show maybe kind of played up a little bit too much is this whole, mm-hmm. his father was a firefighter in 9-11 and obviously he's very New York-based roots guy and also being very young. He was one of the youngest members of the of the, of the show. Okay. And he's one who has carried a lot of personal drama into the show with him. I think there's been a lot of celebrity relationships he's been very public about. He's also had some bouts of whether drugs, alcohol, and he's been very vocal and public about those on the show. He's been gone from the show for extended periods of time. So when I heard that Judd Apatow was going to make a film that was very loosely based on his life, it was uh, not something I'm terribly exciting about. excited about. I will say this, um, in Judd Apatow, I generally like his films. I look back over his filmography and I think I'm positive on all the films I've seen him do. And he also produces a lot more films than even the ones he writes and directs. And right. he's got a good track, good track history. Um, this film surprised me. I liked it. I really did actually like it a lot. It, um, I liked it in spite of the lead character, if that means anything. I mean, I like Pete Davison, I think. He, he gets to play he gets to play Pete Davison in this film. But what Judd Apatel does with the situation and with all the people surrounding the lead character, and to me, it's probably Judd Apatel's most realistic film in that I felt like I knew these people. I felt like I understood a lot of these people. And I don't feel like it was too many caricatures, which you can sometimes find in some of his mm-hmm. other films. Okay. Um, it worked for me. And again, I'm not the biggest Pete Davidson fan and, and he was pretty much playing himself in this film. Uh, I will say he impressed me as the film went on later in the film. There are some moments where I think he did get to show some good acting chops, but um, I like the film in spite of that. I like the film because I felt like these were fairly real characters. I felt like I had some interesting things to say and uh, I liked in general the story. It's a simple story, but it, it worked for me. So and Chris, I want to hear your thoughts on it. I'm curious about this. So, yeah, it was. I, I kind of wish I hadn't known it was a Judd Apatow piece going in okay. because I guess when I hear that name, and I'm, I'm generally a fan of his films. I did like all the three that I mentioned, Trainwreck, Knockout, 40-Year-Old Version. I, I liked all of those. Um, but I guess I expected to, and, you know, humor is very subjective. <laughs> you expected to laugh more. I expected to maybe laugh at least a couple of times. And instead, mm-hmm. I guess, um, as you mentioned, I don't, I've, I never really watched Saturday night live during his time on there. So I didn't really know what kind of humor or where he's coming from, like his kind of his brand of comedy, so to speak. And I, I was just underwhelmed by him during this entire film. And maybe it's just because his type of, you know, dark humor or always just playing the slacker to me at this point is very played out. I mean, I guess you could say Seth Rogen did that and knocked up and, you know, it's just kind of a pot smoking slacker that's going nowhere in life. Okay. That's, you know, pineapple express, that type thing happened, you know, okay. I'm, I'm just, that wasn't based on a true story, but you know, that, that kind of pot smoking going nowhere, but he didn't do it in a funny way. And, you know, I just, I guess I never really liked, him as a <laughs> yeah. character 
And sure. so that, and which granted at the beginning when he's, you know, going nowhere and trapped and all this kind of stuff, maybe you're supposed to feel that way. But then it says something when at the end of the film, I still don't really like him. I don't think yeah. he's, I don't think he's really a good, necessarily comes off as being a good person. It's like, he does things that may be deemed good because he's kind of backed into a corner and really like had somebody shake a finger at him. He's like, Oh, okay. Maybe I should do something better with my life. Like, I don't know. It just didn't. And it's to the point, the people he surrounds himself with, I come off liking them better than I do him. Well, that's why I say I like the film in spite of the lead character because (laughs) I'm going to sound really old and grumpy for a minute. (laughs) But you're right. This is a, a character type we've seen in a lot of films. The difference between the Seth Rogen character and Knocked Up and what we see here with Pete Davidson is, yeah, the Seth Rogen character is pot smoker, maybe not really going anywhere, doesn't know what he's doing with his life, but he's still kind of fending for himself. He's still kind of, you know, he's got his own deal going on. Pete Davidson is playing the type of character that I think, unfortunately, we kind of per- personify a little bit more with some of the millennial generation, some of the yeah, you're young, you're not going anywhere, but you're 24, you're living at home mm-hmm. and you're to the point where your mom's about ready to basically have to kick you out yes. to get you on your butt to make you go do something. Right. And I like the way everybody else put this main character in his place eventually and kind of forced him to say, look, you got to, you got to man up, you got to grow up, you got to get some stuff going. So I liked all those efforts and I, I agree with you. I didn't care for the lead character. I didn't care for him much by the end of the film. I like, I like the supporting cast, the roles they play in helping shape who he needs to be. True. And by the end, there's a little bit of, a little bit of saving grace in the main character. And it's mainly because of the situations everybody around him forced to, to put him in. You know? Yeah. And there's some of those, some of those people you're mentioning, like Marissa Tomei, who plays his mom, or Maud Apatow, who plays his sister, or Bill Burr, who plays the mother's new love interest, you know, the new fireman. Yeah, all of them are are great. They're great. They're so good. I think Marissa Tomei and Bill Burr, uh, they have a couple scenes together, especially in a, a, a scene where they kind of really get to know each other early on and kind of a flirting scene, I guess we could yeah. say. That's really good. I it mean, it's good. to it is good acting. It is really real people. Like it was so refreshing to see an older couple kind of having a true, honest, starting a relationship moment. And even as it's starting, you know, oh yeah, this is good. Definitely going to have some impact on the lead character, but you're like, yeah, good. (laughs) I want it to have, (laughs) I want it to have an impact on that lead character. I want this to be something that pushes him along. And it did. So, um, yeah, I liked everything about this film in spite of not liking the lead character or not really caring for Pete Davison as much. Um, yeah. But I think, but it was so real in a lot of places. And uh, that's what I probably admired about it. Even looking to an Apatow film, his films are always human and there are always some touches of real, realism to them. But the characters always tend to be a little funnier and more caricature-ish, and a little more... Um, just there for fun. And there weren't really that many characters that were put in this movie for fun because there's not a lot of fun in this movie. It's a very, it's definitely his least funny movie. And which I wasn't expecting. So I guess that's kind of how I was taken for a little bit of a ride. Maybe the, uh, I'll tell you this. I, I, I pretty much figured out 
two minutes into this film that this was not going to be a funny film because the opening scene is pretty freaking terrifying, I think. And uh, it's like the opening credits, like right then, the very first scene we see. Yes. It's, it's pretty harrowing. And it's to the point where I'm just like, okay, so I get it. This is not going to be a, a big comedy. This has got a lot more to, to, to talk about. And it did. And um, I think that's, I think I was able to click in right away and say, yep, I'm not looking to laugh. I want something that's a little more beat on its bones. And this did have that in my mind. And so. I think, you know, their trailers probably hurt this movie for me too, because it, it came across to me as it was going to have more comedic moments. And mm-hmm. there, you know, there are moments in the trailer that aren't in the film at all. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so that, you know, there again, I guess, yeah, just kind of took me for surprise. I'll say too, that, um, I was wondering how he was going to play out. Um, I saw this person that I'm going to say was kind of an MVP and actually made me, it pulled the film together at a crucial moment. And I was like, okay, this is what this person was brought in for because he delivers a speech right before a very painful beer brothers, wallflower moment in a bar. (laughs) But um, it's Steve Buscemi. He plays the fire chief at the fire station where Bill Burr works and, you know, you see him in the periphery from, you know, his first couple of scenes, but then he does have this moment where he talks to Scott at a, you know, and he, he basically just kind of lays a bunch of stuff out there. And, you know, Steve Buscemi, you know, he can act, you know, but it's like, he really just, he was the perfect thing at the perfect time to give this like sincerity and everything, but yet yeah, still kind of humorous, some of the stuff he's saying, but he just really, he kind of made it at that moment. Well, I'll tell you, I uh, I was impressed that this film didn't go too too syrupy sweet emotional. Yeah, because it totally could have. It totally could have. And when I got worried when we got later in the film and so the scenery changes to more of the fire department, mm-hmm. I'm just going to leave it at that. When the fire department becomes more of our main setting for the last maybe quarter of the film. I was really worried because I thought, okay, this is going to go off the rails. It's going to be all emotionally overwrought. It's going to be all sentimental. It's all that. And it wasn't. I mean, I honestly felt like it was pretty real. And like you said, the scene right before they had the little sing-along, which um, (laughs) was funny because, I mean, come on, that's the kind of song this group would be singing in a bar. And, uh, but the dialogue they were having before that, and then the dialogue uh, Pete Davison's character has with his mother, Marissa Tome, immediately afterwards. Mm. You're like, okay, they didn't go the over super schmaltzy role with this of True. playing up this. They played it a little more real and it worked for me because it was a lot more authentic, I thought. And uh, the dialogue they're having, the way they're talking about his father and the, his role, and it was very real. So I just, it worked for me. And again, you could have, you could have swapped out Pete Davison with any other young, uh, young adult actor that can kind of play that stoner loser character. And it, the film would have worked for me just as fine. It's the supporting characters and the story around it that worked. Here, here's something that, you know, and I guess there again, it's, it's my fault because I'm holding Judd Apatow and saying, wait, you're making this type of movie. To me, it felt it's either make it a hundred percent, what you're like, make it true to life and make it that don't even call yourself Scott, call yourself Pete, have your father not have died in a hotel fire, but die in nine 11. 
just go ahead and do that because you're hit, you're making it so close. Then it becomes mm. distracting that it's not the actual story. And it makes me feel like I'm just watching a really expensive therapy session. Kind of like when we saw Honey Boy with Shia LaBeouf, where he's reminiscing on his father. But the thing that separated that was that he played his father. They had some dream sequences. So they kind of say, this is weird. This is funky. This is kind of like you are watching Shia LaBeouf work through all his problems. And it wasn't perfect, but it worked better than this worked for me because this was so close, but yet was different that it was kind of distracting. So much yeah. so that it would have been, I guess, schmaltzier, like you're saying, if this would have happened. But I was really dissatisfied, and maybe upon reflection I won't be, with the ending. I thought the ending was very manipulative and kind of just like tacked on like, okay, this is how we're going to have it end, and then boom. To the point where like they're having him stare off at the skyline and you're like, okay, we know Pete Davidson went on to work at Saturday Night Live. Like, I don't know, it just didn't feel like it didn't really stick the landing for me. Um, I didn't get that. I I actually appreciated the ending because it was no, it was no Hollywood ending. It was no, like no huge character development. I mean, there's a little bit, but I mean, he was still he, I still felt like we're watching the same guy who's just maybe got his eyes opened a little bit, just enough to maybe kind of prod him along some. Um, so I don't know, it worked for me. Okay. It worked for me. Okay. Um, I do think again, it, it's a, it's more, it's, a, it's the closest thing to more a slice of life film that I think Apatow's done where there's not a true, I mean, there's a little bit of a plot, but it's not a really tight plot like some of his other films have been. I don't feel like this is probably a little closer to, I mean, he's done a couple films, funny people, and this is 40 that were hit or miss. They were not, I I don't think they were great films, but they had some interesting things they were trying to do. This is 40, probably the closest. That one I just felt like was a little bit too all over the place and just didn't really give me that one message I was looking for. Um, this one, I think he was content saying, look, there's not really a message to this other than I just want to kind of explore kids in this generation and, you know, talk a little bit about the impacts that uh, parents have, you know, because that's a lot of this movie is about parents, even, you know, the potential stepdad and the mom and the sister and everything is a lot of family dynamics, parents and kids. And uh, I don't know, the film worked for me. I thought it was, thought it was good. Again, I'm, Still not a huge fan of Pete Davidson and his performance was pretty much him playing him. If you saw him on any Saturday Night Live skit, that's it. That You saw it. That's him. And uh, But I do think he at least carried the moments late in the film when he needed to carry a little bit of uh, some emotional weight to it. I think he pulled it off okay. But the rest of the film around him is what I really drew me in. Okay. Wow, this is like two for two where you have been higher on the films than me. <laughs> I had a good I had a I had a good film watching weekend. I'll just leave it at that. It was a uh, it was good. I enjoyed both these films we, we talked about today. Sounds like more than you. Uh sounds like there's a bigger gap between on this film, me liking it over you. Yes. Defy Bloods, we are a little closer. Um yeah. I still liked it better regardless. So well that is the King of Staten Island it is available on demand, video on demand. So it's a like a 30 day rental or something or whatever the, or 48 hour rental period like uh, with it. 
uh, kind of the new model they've got for brand new first release films. But it is available right now online for you to rent or buy. Uh, well, definitely rent. The King of Staten Island by Judd Apatow, starring Pete Davison. So, Chris, let's take a quick little break. When we come back, we've got a couple of uh, trailer tapas to share with the group. And then we're also going to do a little soapbox on the Oscars and our recommendations for the show. So stay tuned. You're listening to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.TV. This podcast is sponsored by Jackson Creative, a custom communication agency located in downtown Hickory, North Carolina, specializing in online content creation. To learn more, visit thejacksoncreative.com. Jackson Creative, we tell your story. Welcome back to Foot Candle Films here on the Mesh.tv. Alan Jackson and Chris Fry with you from the Foot Candle Film Society and annual Foot Candle Film Festival, which is coming up, Chris. Yes. September 23rd, 23rd. 27th. Yes. Got it right? Yep. Yes. That's mm-hmm. the name. That'll be our, our uh, annual festival. It'll be our sixth year of the festival. Um, what will it look like? I don't know. Um, will it be in person? Maybe. Will it be virtual? Probably. Uh, it's kind of hard to say. We're still waiting. I think, uh, when we announce everything in early July with the films, we'll have kind of a clear picture of what the festival will look like, but, uh, just know it will be happening that last weekend in September. And we hope that you'll join us one way or another. Uh, please keep on the lookout footcandlefilmfestival.com when we post all the films and announcements in July and uh, find out how you can also join us for that weekend festival uh, that we have a great time here in Western North Carolina. We hope to see you joining us uh, in person or virtually, depending on what our options are at the time. And, uh, and then of course the foot candle film society, our monthly film, uh, film society, where we hold screenings of films here in the Western North Carolina area has been in a bit of a hiatus while film theaters have been closed. So we will be reopening those screenings as soon as we know that the film theaters are ready to take us and can be done so in a very safe and comfortable setting for, uh, for our patrons. But footcandle.org is the website for our film society. You can go and find out when we do end up scheduling our next first uh, film society screening back in the theaters. Right. So, Chris, we had our uh, two reviews of uh, the two films, The Five Bloods and The King of Staten Island. Uh, some mixed results on those. I was pretty favorable and positive on both of them. You uh, were less so on both. Probably probably going to give a pass to The King of Staten Island. It sounds like on your behalf. I'm willing to recommend it. I, I thought it was good in spite of the lead character. I still enjoyed it. And they were both positive on the five bloods, but I was seemed to be a little higher on it than you were. I'm I'm just playing the movie Grinch this episode. You are a little grumpy this uh, this time. That's okay. <laughs> it's all right. So it makes reviews interesting. It's no fun if we feel the same way on every single one. Uh, but now we're done with reviews. Let's move on to both you and I speculating about some things coming up. So our trailer tapas section of the show, this is where we like to play trailers. Now, granted, yes, I know you're listening on audio and trailers may not be as impactful uh, on an audio format as they are in video. So I do encourage you, if you want to follow along with us, I recommend maybe flipping over to YouTube, queuing up the trailer and watching it before you hear us uh, talk about it, if you really want to kind of get deep with it. But if not, Hopefully, at least the audio version will be enough to let you know what's going on. We are going to cover two trailers that have just been released in the last week or so. Uh, One of them, I think, 
could be see it said in some circles as somewhat highly uh, expected. I think uh, highly anticipated film. Maybe the other one. I'll be honest, kind of came out of nowhere, but I'm interested to talk about both of these with you. Chris, what's the first trailer we're going to talk about? We are going to talk about what is being referred to, I guess, as Bill and Ted 3, but as Bill and Ted Face the Music. Bill and Ted Face the Music. Let's play the trailer and then we'll talk about our thoughts on it once it's done. 25 years ago, you played a concert in front of the entire world. One month ago, you played in Barstow, California for 40 people, most of whom were there for $2 taco night. Bill and Ted, what have you got to say for yourselves? Be excellent to each other and party on, dudes. So, Chris... That was the trailer for Bill and Ted Face the Music. You and I have both watched it. What's the takes on this? So we've got Keanu Reeves and we got Alex Winter back reprising their roles for the third time. It has been a big gap of time. Yes. Since the last Bill and Ted uh, bogus journey movie. Yes. Chris, were you a fan of those two movies? And if so, what does this trailer do for you? So, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely saw both of those movies, saw them both in the theater. Granted, by the time I saw Bogus Journey, I could even admit to myself, okay, the comedy, you know, is getting a little thin here. They're going off the high of the first movie, but, you know, but it was amusing enough as I guess probably a teenager when I saw them. Um, I'll say from the trailer, it looks like they are, you know, they are being very self-aware and mocking themselves that what worked back in the you know, late 80s, 90s, or whatever, when these things came out, doesn't quite have the same effect today you know, as far as what movie audiences are going for. I am, was I clamoring for a Bill and Ted 3? Absolutely not. Am I amused that they have bothered to make a third one? Yes. And I'll say, you know, we've kind of had a Keanuissance with uh, the John Wick movies and, you know, the other stuff he's done recently. So, you know, I'm interested to see what they do. Will I run out to the theater and see it? No, but if I hear it's the slightest bit good, you know, I'll at least red box it. So I, I am curious. I, I'm, I'm curious. How about you? Well, I, I'm curious is a good word for it. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm anxious to see the film. I'm just curious how they're able to pull it together. What's interesting for me is, you know, we've had films that have had sequels done much, much, much later than the original. Right. But in a lot of those situations, I kind of felt like it was the actors were trying to grab onto some glory day and reprising a role that made them famous. And maybe they haven't had quite as much success or really built that, that identifiable character since then. So now this is a chance to revisit it. Keanu's not in that situation. I don't feel like, no, he's and not. this is, this is what's maybe the most interesting about this film is that Keanu doesn't need to make this movie. No. <laughs> um, he is having a true renaissance of his, um, you know, with the John wick character. And he's even gotten to play some, I mean, I saw him, he's, in the new SpongeBob movie. Have you seen the trailer for that? I have like, not. <laughs> he's actually a character in the new SpongeBob SquarePants movie that's coming out. So he has really become this icon, you know, over the last 20 years. He was and, in Toy uh, Story 4. He's like a Yeah, I mean, just he he's kind of really kind of grew into a real his own mythic character in a way. 
And so he didn't need to do this movie um, where you could argue some actors kind of feel like they need to go back to the well to reach out to these old characters. So I think that's what's most interesting to me than anything is that he is a, he is an actor who has, has really evolved into something else since Point Break and Bill and Ted and some of those movies he did back in the day. So I'm just curious to see how he holds up with it. I'm just, I'm curious to see, can he, I mean, we saw he could do comedy. He did, uh, yeah. uh, always be my maybe, uh, he did the Netflix film that, uh, um, oh gosh, I forget. I haven't, I haven't seen that one, but I know that he did do that where he, yeah. yeah, yeah. And he was so good. Um, he was so great in that and just had fun chewing the scenery with his playing up his persona. So he can do comedy, and uh, obviously he did the original Bill and Tell, and he was really funny in those movies. So I don't know. I'm curious. I'm honestly watching this for Keanu. Uh, I'm sorry, Alex Winter, but I don't know what you've done in the last 20 years, so I do kind of feel like you're grabbing at this to get back your Gloria Day role. Keanu doesn't need to, so I'm just anxious to see how he plays off it now. So Hmm. yeah, I'll give it a shot. I mean, who knows? Stranger things have happened. It could be good. It's true. Could be good. <laughs> All right. But let's talk about this other one, Chris. We actually saw another trailer got released. You and I are both fans of Will Ferrell yes. in general. We know that he has some hits and misses on his filmography. Um, but in general, we think we, we like him. And we, we generally will be interested in anything we see that he's doing. So when they announce a new Netflix film coming out in just a couple of weeks, I think, called the Eurovision Song Contest, the story of, is it Fire? Fire Saga. That's Fire the name Saga. of the band is Fire Saga. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So immediately I'm wanting to watch this trailer <laughs> and see what this is all about. It's okay. Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams in a comedy. Uh, let's watch the trailer. Ever since we were children, we've had one dream. Winning the Eurovision Song Contest. All right, everyone. I am Lars. This is Secret. We are Fire Saga. Who wants to hear a Eurovision song? All of Iceland thinks we are a joke. That's not true. And my father is ashamed of me. No, he's not. He looked me into the eyes and said, I am ashamed of you. Maybe he was drunk. He said, and you might think that I'm drunk? But I am dead sober. Idiot. So, Chris, I got to ask you, <laughs> after watching that trailer, what, where are you in this film from your first blush here? Now, I, I, to, you know, I do have a Netflix subscription, so it will cost me nothing to see this movie. So, will I be watching it on June 26th, the weekend it comes out? Absolutely, um, yeah. because I want to laugh. I think, you know, even if I just see the jokes that are in the trailer, which is a danger of seeing straight to Netflix movies, yeah. uh, Coffee and Kareem, <laughs> um, I, I'll still laugh and it will still be worth it because, you know, it, hopefully there'll be a few more laughs. And something like this that's so stylized, you know, it's kind of like yeah. a, uh, a Zoolander, but for singing, you know, instead of modeling yeah. that had, you know, so it's, it's that thing that I think, I think it could be really funny. So kind of like, well, go ahead. It, and I was going to say it, it's playing into Will Ferrell's wheelhouse right. perfectly. Okay. So think about the films where he's really on his game and it's normally a situation where he's having to, uh, having to play someone who's, you know, trying to battle back 
a very, very specific skilled character who's trying to show the world that he really is good at something, but nobody believes him. Right. I even liked his film Blades of Glory, the one he did with uh, <laughs> about the ice skating. Right. I thought that was pretty funny. It was not as good as an anchorman or uh, some of the other ones, but it was still pretty funny. Semi-pro, I think, has its moments. Um, this seems to be right in that same vein of... Kind of Talladega Nights, I guess. Yeah, yeah. He's an Icelandic singer going to be competing on the Eurovision song contest with his singing partner. Uh, they seem like they're a little, maybe over the hill, a little bit more out of touch. Um, of course they're going to get in the contest through some sort of loophole or something else. I mean, this is exactly a Will Ferrell movie. And I yeah, I laughed, I laughed a lot during the trailer. So I'm, would I have paid 10 bucks to see it in a movie theater when it came out? I'd probably wait for the reviews to come out and see if it's worth it or not. Sure. But uh, Netflix, sure, probably opening weekend, I'll watch this thing. Why not? And uh, should be a lot of fun. Plus, I think Rachel McAdams has got a great comic sense of uh, timing. She was great in Game Night. She the was movie She did that. with Jason Bateman. Yeah. So it's fun to see her do another like over-the-top action uh, or a comedy piece here. And I mean, the production value of this thing just looks ridiculous. It looks great. And uh, and then you've got, oh my gosh, I'm drawing a blank on the on the actor's name. Dan, um, Dan, he played, he's playing the rival. In he's the playing the movies. nemesis. Yeah, I know yeah. who you're talking about, but I can't remember his uh, name. He's from Downton Abbey. And he was in that movie, The Guest, that we saw years ago. Oh, right. Uh, Dan, oh. Can't believe I'm forgetting his name. I'm See, the I never, still haven't seen Downton Abbey, so I, I don't know that. But, um, but and then Pierce Brosnan playing yeah. uh, Will Ferrell's father, which is perfect. I mean, that's just, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited. <laughs> I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Even if it's so. dumb. Even if it's Dan Stevens, that's the one I'm talking about. Okay. Dan Stevens plays kind of their their competitor, their rival, and he he seems to be just eating it up too. So I'm I'm on board. Count me excited. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> I'm same here. <laughs> Good deal. Awesome. So that's our trailer top as we got two films, uh, you know, Bill and Ted face the music. I think you and I are both probably going to wait to hear what some of the early reactions are before we decide whether we want to stream, download movie theater, whatever this may be doing when it comes out. But uh, the uh, Euro Eurovision song contest, I think you and I'll be oh. probably watching this first weekend it comes out. So Absolutely. So, yeah. We'll have to see how they pan out. Comedies are tough. Comedies are very, very tough. Yeah. We'll have to see how these play out. All right, Chris, uh, before we move on to our recommendations, I did want to just talk about one thing. I'm going to pull out my, my soapbox. Okay. Kind of get it all positioned here. I'm going to get up and stand on it. Talk about my soapbox. My soapbox is about the Oscars. The Academy okay. Awards, as you as you may say, call them. And the Academy Awards have been a soapbox topic before. So I think in general, they're just going to be rife with discussion topics and controversy and different viewpoints. But we do have a situation here, Chris, we need to talk about. The Oscars. What are we going to do <laughs> here this year? Okay, so let's just set the stage. I mean, normally the Oscars, the Academy Awards, they take the films that were released in a calendar year, and it's very strictly a calendar year, January 1 through December 31. Uh, it used to be, or for the most part still is, saying that it has to be films that are theatrical releases. And even if you're a Netflix film, you still got to run in a theater for a certain amount of time to be considered for Academy Awards, blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, this, this 
year, the world has changed all the rules. So here we are halfway through the year. Honestly, by the time you're listening to this, it's almost exactly the halfway point of the year. We had the first two months of the year with theatrical releases. And then in March, things started to go away and we started to go online only. Right. A lot of movies have been punted back. Some have been moved back a year. Some have been back several months. I, I think it suffice it to say by the end of December 31st, we're not going to have the full slate of films to work with for the Academy Awards as we oh. normally do. So, Chris, here's my question to you. What do you do? So your options what, uh, are this. Yeah, what would now, I here's do? Your options. Okay. Here's your options. Option number one. You play it hard and fast and say, nope, that's the deal. December 31st, and it's whatever films came out. We're going to give the allowance of online video on demand premieres because we kind of have to. But that's that's the only modification we're making. It is January through December, and whatever's released is released, and that's the ones we're going to pick from for all the awards. Okay? That's okay. option one. Option two, you delay the awards. You extend the period and say, you know what? Instead of having the ceremony in February or March, we're going to have it in the summer. And we're going to actually add three or four months to the beginning of the year, assuming theaters are open and stay open for a long period of time later in the year. We're going to give a few more months so that more films can be released and we can kind of have a, a bigger pool to work with and be a little more equal to previous years. Okay, so that's option two. Option three is don't have Academy Awards this year. It's an off year, not going to do it. We're going to punt to 2021's uh, films, but the Academy Awards we do in 2022 are going to cover two years worth of films. That's your three, that's your three options, Chris. Which do you go with? If you wow. were the director of the Motion Picture Association of America, you could make the call on the Academy Awards. What do you do? Uh, that's tough. Um, it's easy for me to say I would definitely not do option two. Okay. Um, no extending of the year, no monkeying no. with the schedule. Right. No. Um, I, I, I think if I had my way, I would do option one. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, before, okay. I was going to say, what would you, okay. No, I'm with you on option one. I, I, I get that this is a weird year. I get that the, the pool of films is different, but, I kind of feel like, you know, the Academy Awards also, whoever wins the awards needs to be a reflection of the time. And to me, in a way, if you look back on the, the 2020 films, I want to be able to look back and say, you know what? These were the Best Picture nominees. And do they look a little different than maybe the, the years we're used to? Sure. But it is a reflection of the year we've had. And I think that's where they need to stick with it. Well, here's something else, which I don't think there's any way they're going to do option one. I think they've already decided to do option Two or three. They, right? the word is they're con contemplating option two, which yeah. I don't like. But yeah, no, I think it's I think it's garbage. And the reason why, and granted, you know, I don't make movies for a living, so I'm not a production company. I'm not worried about box office returns. That you know, I'm lucky that way. But I think if the intent of the Academy Awards is to reward acting talent and truly care not about box office returns or not about how many people have seen a movie or not about all those things, but actually care about the acting or the cinematography or the directing within the movies that came out. I would be excited if they chose option one, because that would mean this year, a lot of lesser known films 
could actually get a big spotlight because if something like, you know, Emma that you and I reviewed on the show or Swallow that we have reviewed on the show, if one of those movies probably Swallow more than uh, Emma, but the actress in that who did a great job mm-hmm. got nominated for actress, of the, that would be huge because normally that kind of independent movie that's kind of a horror, like thriller type weirdo movie, that would never even get any on anybody's radar. But because there's a, such a smaller pool, mm-hmm. I think that that's all the more exciting. You know, I so think I'd, it could be a really fun year. I mean, yeah. Hell, Chris, Eurovision Song Contest could get nominated for something. Who Costume knows? design. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, anything's possible. I just, I, I don't know. I don't like the idea of monkeying with the regular schedule. I think the Oscars ought to be a reflection of the year. And I mean, there have been years in the past where we've had really, you know, the year 9-11 happened. The, the, the following year was kind of an interesting year for cinema. And there were a lot of movies that started to kind of play off that idea. True. Well, the awards kind of reflected that or the nominations reflected that back in you know, wartime Vietnam where there were a lot of films afterwards that kind of uh, reflected the state of America at the time. So I kind of feel like that's where we need to be at this year too. Um, you know, again, will it mean that trolls two is going to get a nomination for best animated film? Yeah, probably so. But at least but, it has onward to compete against it. Well, but I mean, <laughs> so, even from a historical yeah. perspective, we would look back and say, well, but you know, of the animated films that were released that year, right. maybe it was one of the best ones. I don't know, best right. animated one. True. So again, I think it needs to be a reflection of the year, even even during the weird years. So. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm on the same page. And I guess selfishly, there again, because I don't have any concern about box office returns, that would mean that maybe – if they decided that they weren't, if they were going to stick with option one, maybe it would push, you know, Tenet to come out VOD. <laughs> Even yeah. though I want to see Tenet in the theater, Christopher Nolan's newest movie that just also had a trailer, a new trailer release that we didn't talk about. Um, but I really want to see that. Yeah, I'd love to see it in a the theater, but it's been pushed from July, I think, to October now, maybe? No, no, no. Tenet only got bumped two weeks okay so it's wonder it's still going to be got... the yeah wonder woman got bumped october okay. tenant is still going to be the end of july now okay yeah. so i would still love to see it in a theater but i want to see it and i you know i would like for it to just go ahead and come out this year so it could be considered well in the, in the year of the movies and here's the thing too is that there's still a lot of high caliber films by high caliber directors coming out this year even on netflix uh Netflix alone has a new David Fincher film coming out later this year. Yeah. Netflix has a new one by Raman Barani, you know, Goodbye Solo, 99 yeah. Homes. They're doing his new film, uh, White okay. Tiger, is going to be on Netflix later this year. Ron, ha- Ron Howard's got a new film coming out on Netflix. And then, of course, Spike Lee. We just reviewed Spike Lee's new film, you know, on Netflix. So yeah. it's not like there's a dearth of quality films with quality filmmakers being made. Um, it's just, you know, unfortunately, I think that the trip up the where I, I understand the desire to maybe want to change it up and maybe not have it be on the calendar year is because there were a lot of studios and filmmakers who kind of dropped their film back arbitrarily because of the situation Sure, that maybe we're planning on it being a 2020 release is now a 2021 release and they can't really go backwards and now pull it back into 2020. So they may feel like they kind of missed their window of really getting the recognition for the film they were hoping for. So I get that. It is an unfortunate situation that studios had to kind of play a lot of shuffleboard with uh, release schedules. 
But again, I just I'm not in favor of monkeying with the formula, and I think it ought to be a reflection of the year. So I, I definitely don't think they. Yeah, I feel like they should either they should do option one, but you know, I definitely don't feel like they should do option three because I feel like that's unfair to have all these movies plus all the movies that come out and then you know to do to try to cram all that because then the field would be way too narrow because all you yeah. would remember you would totally forget all the films that came out this oh, yeah. year. No matter well, how I good think, they were. I think that happens even if you just extend three or four months out because we're still talking, you know, that's still sixteen months worth of films and it's been almost a year and a half since maybe some of the ones you saw. So yeah. Right. I think the year is the right way to keep it. I hope they do. I yeah, really me do. Too. Me too. All right. Okay. I'm stepping down from my soapbox. I'm done. <laughs> Fair you enough. and I both had a little bit of a soapbox with We this. did. We did. Yeah. All right. Well, Chris, we are now at the last part of our show. This is where we both share a recommendation of a film that we either recently caught up with or just had a chance to revisit for some reason. And we think is worth recommending, um, at least for me, to a certain segment of our audience. So, um, Chris, why don't you go ahead and go first? Sure. So uh, I'm going to recommend a movie that I think you recommended if you didn't give a mini review on when it came back out in uh, 2018. And it's the sequel to Creed, which I know we reviewed on the show. But yeah. um, I'm going to recommend Creed 2. And if you mm-hmm. haven't seen Creed 1, I guess this, you can go ahead and rent that one as well. Um, I liked Creed 2. And you mm-hmm. had, you'd liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, I was hesitant to see it, and I never did until recently. It was in quarantine. It came up. I was like, hey, I never saw the sequel. I was kind of disappointed. They made a sequel. The director wasn't the same. It's instead of Ryan Coogler, who'd gone on to make Black Panther. Uh, Stephen Capel Jr. was the director on this one. But it still has Michael B. Jordan, Sylvester Stallone, Tessa Thompson. So all the actors return. And it was good. It was really mm-hmm. good. Do I like mm-hmm. it as much as the first one? No. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't succumb so much to sequelitis. And there's an interesting thing going on with a returning character from the original Rocky movies, Dolph Lundgren. And there's a, enough of a through line with him trying to raise his son to be a boxer. There's some interesting stuff going on there. So it was, yeah. as you had recommended, I think when you saw the movie and you liked it, um, there's enough going on there that it was it was still a really good watch. So uh, Creed II. Yeah, I thought the I thought the story I thought the what they did with the Dolph Lundgren character and his son, like you said, was really interesting. I mm-hmm. thought it was a an interesting twist on the story. Sure. And you know, yes, there are a lot of moments. I mean, just like they said, the original Creed movie was a lot of callback to the original Rocky, and yeah, it was. This one was a lot of callback to Rocky three and four. You know, kind of where. Apollo Creed and then the, the whole uh, Russian subplot in, in Rocky Four, um, But it did it tastefully. It did it respectfully. And I still think the fight scenes were pretty exciting. And, sure. uh, you know, it's great. And I really, I really liked Tessa Thompson and Michael B. Jordan's relationship. I thought yeah. it was strong. It was really, really strong. So, yeah, I'd say this to me was a little notch below the original Creed, but it was still really good. So I still liked it a lot. Okay, Chris, my turn. And I can't um, wait. I have no idea what you're uh, going to recommend. I'm looking forward to it. So, okay. So I didn't feel so hot this weekend. Oh. And when I don't feel so hot, you know, and I have to kind of slack off my, my, my house duties and yard duties and work duties and all. Sometimes I just want to watch something dumb, but okay. fun. Dumb, but fun. And dumb, okay. but fun. 
um, could be the subtitle for this film. Uh, face, it's it's 1997's Face Off. Oh. So, by John Woo, directed John by Woo. John Woo. Oh, yes. yeah. John Travolta and Nicolas Cage. Okay. If you just heard me say Face Off and you've already just feverishly shut off the podcast player because, you know, I get, I get it. I totally get it. I do not blame you. I do not disrespect you. I am with you that this is a really dumb movie. <laughs> But I just it's a, have to love, it's a ridiculous premise. But. but I just have to admire the I gotta admire the the cojones these guys all had to say, look, this is the movie we're gonna make. <laughs> sure. Let me just read the plot line. Oh, yeah. In order to foil a terrorist plot, who I might say, the terrorist name Castor Troy. And in case you don't remember that name, they only will tell you that name about 40 times in the film. <laughs> Caster Troy, played by Nicolas Cage. Of course. In, in order to foil a terrorist plot, an FBI agent undergoes facial transplant surgery and assumes the identity of a criminal mastermind who murdered his only son. The plan <laughs> turns sour when the criminal wakes up prematurely and seeks revenge. Do you know how he seeks revenge, Chris? By getting the face of the FBI sure. agent put on him. Right. Okay. I mean, as you do. <laughs> oh, it's 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 a it's a mystery science theater three thousand type of approach to this film where just you gotta just check your brain out and say, look, nothing about this premise will work. They're not even the same height. They're not the same body build. There's no way they could look the same by just replacing their faces. And even so, I'm commenting on the logistical nature of replacing faces someone's face yeah okay it does not work and it's not supposed to be in the future it was supposed to be like current day but that's what's weird made. is that it's not supposed to be in the future but right. yet this procedure is super futuristic and the prison that uh nicholas well the john travolta character who now is played by nicholas cage gets sent to is so over the top They've got these giant magnetic boots they're all walking around in. Oh, There's right. these giant video screens up on the wall. It is crazy. Right. And here's what here's what I do love about this film, though. Okay, this is why I'm still going to fight for this film no matter what. Anybody who wants to talk me oh, out of it. I saw this film in the theater. I, I remember it well. <laughs> I had such a good I have such a good time with this film. The concept, however ridiculous, still leads itself to a really interesting premise where you get to have Nicolas Cage playing John Travolta's right. FBI character, but yet he's trying to act like Nicolas Cage while still being restrained by John Travolta. Okay. <laughs> and then you've got the opposite. You've got John Travolta playing someone who's really Nicolas Cage, but trying to play like John Travolta. Right. And you could just see the fun these two actors were having, trying to mimic each other. <laughs> but yet also masking the fact that they're mimicking each other. Right. So it's a fun concept. And I will say, I still get a little bit of goosebumps. There is a moment in the film where the Nicholas Cage playing John Travolta's FBI character stuck in the prison because he's arrested because everybody thinks he is Castor Troy. Right. And he's trying to figure out a way to get out. He thinks he's going to get out because he thinks that the plot's going to be revealed of what they were doing and that he's going to get rescued by the FBI. But then there's a moment where he gets put in this empty room. He's supposed to be having a conversation with an FBI agent who's coming to visit. The door opens and it's Nick Cage 
played by John Travolta, walking into the room. And at that moment, you realize as the viewer, oh, crap, this is now turned into like a super weird story going on here. Um, I still love that moment. And this movie also knows how ridiculous it is. Oh, yeah. There, there is a scene late in the film where finally Nicholas Cage playing the John Travolta character finally gets to confront his wife. Of course, his wife sees him as the man who is a mass murderer and killed her son. Sure. But he's trying to convince her that, no, it's really me. It's really John Travolta, your husband. And he starts describing the plot to her. He says, well, <laughs> we went in and had this surgery where we took the face. And he just, Nicolas Cage playing this role, stops and cracks up laughing because he realizes, yeah, this is ridiculous to try to describe this plot to <laughs> But they acknowledge it. They get it. And he's just like, look, yeah, I know this sounds ridiculous, but this is really what happened. Wow. <laughs> and I love that moment. So anyway, I'm going to fight for this film. I love right. it. Um, it is over the top John Woo. It is. Uh, <laughs> but you're not really a fan of John Woo, right? No, not really. Yeah. No. I like this film, but that was about it for him. Gotcha. Um, I love the fact that the audacity of the ending fight scene. Let me just one more note on this, Chris. Sure. The ending fight scene between these two characters starts in their house, that the John Travolta's house, goes out into their yard. You have a little fight sequence there. Then they make their way to a pier or a boat dock, fight some more. Then they, no, no, I'm sorry. Then they go to a church and they have a big fight scene there wow. with doves flying and everything. Of course, it's John. Of Wood. course, it's John Woods. Then you get to a pier and they fight some more. Then you get into a boat and they have a boat fight. <laughs> then the <laughs> boat ends up on the shore and they have a fight on the shore. Wow. And that's, I mean, you think this film's going to end and it just keeps going and it just wow. keeps ramping it up. And I don't know. It's so much fun to watch. So anyway, face off John Woo, 1997. It's violent. It's over the top. It's dumb. It makes no logical sense, but man, man, is it just fun to watch. (laughs) Fair enough. All right. So that's our recommendations for the show here. Uh, Chris, with a a little bit, a little bit more highbrow film than me, Creed 2, a very, very good film in its own right. But I had to throw face face off in there and I'm very happy I did. So if you're still listening to us, even after that recommendation... (laughs) Uh, thank you for listening. This has been Foot Candle Films. We did a review of uh, two films, The Five Bloods, on uh, Netflix. You can see King of Staten Island available on VOD. Uh, we earlier reviews of both of those. We talked about the trailers for Bill and Ted Face the Music, as well as the latest Will Ferrell movie, Eurovision Song Contest, the saga, no, the story of Fire Saga. Is that the exact name? Is that what I got right? Okay. Then we also did our uh, soapbox on the Oscars and what they should do for 2020. And then our recommendations of the episode. So Chris, if anybody has any thoughts to share or they want to fight me on face off, how do they get a hold of us? So you can send us an email to info at the mesh.tv. You can follow us on Twitter at foot candle film. Alan and I are also on letterbox periodically where you can track what we're seeing um, if you like the podcast and would feel so inclined, give us a star rating or write a review for us in iTunes. Uh, it helps us reach new listeners. We'd appreciate it. And uh, as Alan mentioned earlier in the podcast, the Foot Candle Film Festival will be going on September 23rd through the 27th. And you can find out more about that at footcandlefilm.org oh, or yes. footcandlefilmfestival.com. 
uh, to find out more about that and the details that we'll have about that coming up. That's right. So that has been Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.TV. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll look forward to talking to you next time. See you in the ticket line at a safe social distance. Cool. Good. Did that background noise get too much on the mic, Alan? I mean, it was on there, but I don't think it's bad. Do you need me to redo it or no? I think Meadow came home from work and the dogs like went nuts. Okay. Well, if you want to record just that last little, you know, hey, yeah. Chris, what do they do if they want to talk to us? Yeah, I can redo it. If you want to do that again, we'll wrap up the show again. That's fine. Okay. I'll make a note of that. Let me uh, note that we re-recorded the ending. All right, so we'll come back to you at 1.32 and whenever you start. So anytime you're ready, go for it. Okay. If you'd like to give us some feedback, send us an email to info at themesh.tv and mention for Candle Films in the subject line and we'll uh, read your review and maybe or read your input, maybe mention it on air. You can also follow us on Twitter at Foot Candle Film. We're on Letterboxd where you can track what we're seeing. Alan's on there. I'm on there as well. Uh, if you feel so inclined, we'd really appreciate it if you'd give us a star rating or write a review for us in iTunes. It helps us reach new listeners. The Foot Candle Film Festival will be held the 23rd through the 27th, which Alan mentioned earlier in the show. You can find out more information about that at footcandlefilmfestival.com or footcandle.org. We'll be posting details about that. All right. So that is a lot of different ways you can connect with us. And we do want to say thank you to listening to this episode. And we hope you'll subscribe for future episodes if you're enjoying the conversations. We will look forward to talking to you next time here on Foot Candle Films. See you in the ticket line at a safe social distance. Special thanks to Carpal Tuller for the show theme music. For more about Carpal Tuller, visit www.carpaltuller.com. You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.